the whole point of flirting is to increase sexual interest in somebody else. Like it's not just to be buddies. There's definitely a sexual element to it. And so it's like, why would you do this to yourself? It's like, you know, being on a diet and hanging out in a bakery. Like you don't do that. <laughs> why, like, why would you tempt yourself that way? Hey guys, welcome back to Mostly Balanced with Carly and Mia. Hi everyone, welcome back. We have a really fun guest today. He is Dr. Gary. He is a love expert and he has a TED talk that's about breakups and how they don't leave you broken. And he wrote a book that comes out tomorrow and it's all about the blind spots in relationships and kind of debunking myths that are around relationships. Dr. Gary, I really liked him. He was really cool. It was fun to talk to him. And it was actually interesting because he talked about so many things that we've talked about on recent episodes. So it was really relevant to the toxic relationship episode and a couple of the other mini episodes that we've had recently. I felt like he touched on a few of those different topics. Yes. And I've been dying to get a male opinion on relationships. So I was excited to have him. It was a really good episode. I'm excited for everyone to hear it. And I think that it will be a topic that everyone is interested in. Because like we always say, relationships and dating and all that, that's something that everyone can relate to. Everyone has relationships, romantic friendships, whatever. This is all talking about dating and romantic relationships. But it's not like a self-improvement book, but it kind of is like a relationship improvement book. I feel like I learned some things from from it that would help me in any relationship. Yeah, it kind of, I think it kind of focuses on the things that you focus on in your relationship and like wonder if they're bad and wonder if they start having doubts. And the book is giving you some research backed studies that are showing that a lot of the things are just misconceptions and kind of reframes the way to look at your relationship. So he feels that anyone could come out of this book feeling more positive and empowered to have a stronger relationship. Yeah. Before we get into that, we can chat a little bit about what's going on with us. I'm loving that we are having these mini solo episodes every week because I feel like we get to catch up there too. But we both had, I guess, pretty uneventful weeks, but we did get to hang out yesterday, which was really fun. Yes, that was fun. I hadn't been into the city in so long. So we went to the Butcher's Daughter and it was so weird. We were saying it's funny. We're sitting outside in February like the day before a snowstorm, but it was nice. I liked the whole outdoor setup. Yeah, yeah. Soho was very busy. It's been, if there's any day that's above 35 degrees and it's sunny, I feel like people are just out and ready to sit outside in the cold. (laughs) February outdoor dining, nothing like it. Yeah. I mean, that was the highlight of my week, I think. I've been watching a lot of Food Network and I just downloaded the Discovery Plus app and started watching Bobby and Jada in Italy and it's making me want to travel so, so badly. And I think I watched that all in like a night or two. Yeah, I'm dying to travel. I definitely want to get away at least for like a long weekend somewhere warm in the next few Mm -hmm. weeks or months. But... Yeah. So that I guess that was really the highlight of my weekend too. I also finished a book that I had been reading. So I just finished Ask Again Yes, which you actually read, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I read it. It was good. And then the last couple books I read in five years, which you just bought yesterday. So good. I can't wait to talk about it. And then a few others that have been really good. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to reading in five years and I'm finishing up all adults here, which was a fun read too. So I know I'm trying, I always keep a list in my phone of books I read and I'm trying to read more. I always tend to read a lot more in the beginning of a year and then, and a lot over the summer, but I like fizzle out at times. Yeah. Summer, I feel like for sure, because you just lay outside and read a book. In the winter, sometimes if I'm just sitting in my apartment on the couch, I kind of have a habit of turning on the TV. But I was just saying to somebody the other day that for some reason lately, when I watch TV, all I watch is reruns of shows that I've already seen before. And there could not be a bigger (laughs) waste of time. Like I just feel like I'm actually getting nothing out of that experience. I'm just watching something I've already seen. So instead, I'm trying to read a book. And it also helps me with less screen time at night because now I'll just read for the last hour before I go to bed. Yes, that's good. I'm probably going to do a lot of reading tonight because it's the Super Bowl. And I <laughs> I feel like that's a good time to do some reading because I will not really be paying attention. <laughs> yeah, good reading time if you're not a sports fan. 
Yeah, I found out who was playing in the Super Bowl yesterday. So we're gonna make <laughs> we're gonna make dips. I'm making spinach artichoke dip and a buffalo chicken dip. So I'm here for the snacks. Yeah, that's what it's all about. The snacks and the commercials. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> and then I guess something new that I've been trying lately, I've been really into making fun drinks at home, not alcoholic drinks, but like latte type drinks. So I've been making really delicious chai lattes and I posted the recipe on our Instagram a couple weeks ago and it's so good. I used to always get a chai latte when I would go to Starbucks in my younger years. All it is is just like a cup full of sugar. It's just so much sugar. But now the one that I'm making at home, it has like the perfect amount of sweetness. I use Julie's Dates Date Syrup, which gives it like a really nice, delicious, sweet flavor, but doesn't make you crash later on because it's not any refined sugar or anything. And then I also put all these delicious spices in it. And sometimes I'll add some collagen to it, but not usually, but it's just so good. So if anyone is interested in trying a chai latte recipe, definitely head over to our Instagram feed and check out the reel that we have posted. It has the whole recipe in there. Yes, I need to do it because yesterday at Butcher's Daughter, I was obsessed with the chai latte and I got two. The Mickey Mouse chai. (laughs) Yeah. So it came with like fun cinnamon designs on top and Carly had like this intricate, beautiful floral design and mine was just Mickey Mouse. They were so good though. (laughs) They were amazing. They were amazing. So I want to make that recipe for sure. And my new thing, funny enough, is also a non-alcoholic drink that I tried last night. So it is a kombucha called BKE. It was a really good kombucha and it has really, I was drawn to it because it's a really cute bottle. And I looked into the company and it was founded by these people, Lawrence and Selena, who work at the CDC. So they're like curing epidemics. They're both physicians, but they're also like super into meditation and sound baths and have this like holistic approach to health and wellness. And they became roommates and they both had a love for kombucha and they started making small batch kombucha out of their apartment in Bushwick. So it is a local small business in Brooklyn and they have really cool flavors. They have a whole process of fermenting and brewing their kombucha, which I mean, I don't know too much about, but they use all really great ingredients inspired by a lot of the places that they've traveled all over the world. So yeah, the flavor I had was called Unadorned and then they have some rose and like all different really cool artisanal flavors. So I'm here to support Brooklyn small businesses and I always love a good kombucha. Yeah, I love that it's a local business. That's so cool. I love that you learned all about them. (laughs) Yeah, Lawrence and Selena. (laughs) (laughs) Do they sell at other places? I've been seeing it now. Now that I picked it up in one store, I've been seeing it in like a lot of little grocery stores near my apartment in Brooklyn. I'm not sure if it's like available in grocery stores other places just because it is so local, but you can order it on their website and like buy a carton of 12 and yeah. You're Look such out a for it. Resident. Yes, I am. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think everyone's going to love this episode. I hope you guys like it. Definitely feel free to let us know what you think. We always love to connect with people over Instagram. So send us a message. Tell us what you thought about the episode, what you thought about Gary. And if you think of it, please leave a rating or a review on the podcast. It's the best way to help spread the word and help other people find Mostly Balanced. Yes, thank you for listening and we'll see you again on Thursday for another mini episode. Do you ever feel completely lost when it comes to making healthy and delicious meals at home? I've been feeling so uninspired lately, especially now that I'm working from home and eating all my meals in my own kitchen. Sakara Life is an all-natural meal delivery service that's completely vegan and plant-based. Sakara is anchored in the idea of using food as medicine, which we love. They offer plant-based nutrition in the form of ready-to-eat meals, snacks, and supplements designed to help you feel like your best self. I'm telling you, I never feel better than when I'm eating my Saqqara meals. They deliver their meals straight to your door, save you the stress of having to decide what to make, plus no grocery shopping, no prep, and virtually no cleanup. Each recipe is based on a whole food, plant-rich diet that includes fresh, nutrient-dense, and delicious ingredients. Their meals and products are backed by cutting-edge nutrition science and traditional healing wisdom to give your body what it needs to thrive. 
Every meal is completely plant-based and so filling and so delicious. You can order now using the link in our show notes and code XOBALANCED for 20% off their meal programs or clean boutique items. Let us know if you try it. We're both loving it and we know you'll love it too. Welcome back. We are here with a guest we are so excited about today. He is a relationship psychologist and love expert and a teacher and a speaker and a writer. His TED Talk, Breakups Don't Have to Leave You Broken, has over 2 million views. And his book, Stronger Than You Think, The 10 Blind Spots That Undermine Your Relationship and How to See Past Them, comes out tomorrow. So welcome to Mostly Balanced, Dr. Gary Lewandowski. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yes, welcome. We're so excited to talk to you. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, maybe just where you grew up and a little bit about what you do now? Sure. I grew up northeast of Philadelphia in a suburb right across the river from Trenton. I went to college out in central Pennsylvania, out near Lancaster, where there was more cows and corn than people, it seemed. So it was a little bit of a transition. Then I went to grad school out in Long Island, where I worked with one of the world-leading experts in relationship science, Art Heron. And then once I graduated, I moved down to New Jersey and I've been working as a professor at Monmouth ever since for the last 19 years. Wow. So growing up, did you always want to be a writer? Were you always interested in relationships? How did you kind of find this path for yourself? I, I mean, when I was little, I wanted to be a cop, right? Like, you know, <laughs> I, I had a big wheel that I, like, I, I roll around. I had a little fake siren. I get like, a little spin out bar and I'm, you know, I was going to go out and get the bad guys. And then I went to school and then I realized, you know, maybe I wanted to do something else. And for a little while, I wanted to be a teacher. I wanted to be a history teacher because, you know, that was my favorite topic at, at the time. But then in high school, I was on the tennis team and our coach was a psychologist and he would talk about psychology and things like, oh, that's something I can do. I like talking to people. I like kind of like figuring people out and asking questions and being a little bit nosy into people's lives. I mean, that, that's always a little bit fun. So I went to college. I really thought I was going to be a clinical psychologist. Uh, I did an internship where, you know, it did like one-on-one counseling and I was, you know, trying to help people. And though it went well, I just kind of realized like the scope, the number of people I was going to be able to talk to in any one week or month or how many people I was going to help was, it was always going to be a little bit small. And so, you know, I met with my advisor and I said, you know, I don't know if this clinical psych thing is for me. And she's like, well, you know, your reasons are valid, you know, so what do you like thinking about? And, you know, I was in college and I was a guy. And so I was like, well, um, girls, <laughs> relationships, but, and I said, you know, just kind of offhandedly, like, like girls and relationships, but I mean, I know you can't study that. And she's like, well, you can. And I'm like, really? Who knew? Like, so it really took me until my senior year of college before I figured out what it is I'm doing today. That's so funny. So it really was just kind of what you were interested in and that led you there. So are you married yourself? I am. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so now you're coming out with this book and we were just chatting a little bit before starting recording and it's something you've been working on for a while. Is this something that really like flowed through you or was it something that you had to do a lot of research while you were writing it? Huh, I've never thought about it that way. Flowed through me probably. It was in a lot of ways easy to write. A ton of research went into it. In the final product, there's over 350 research studies that are cited in the book. To get down to 350, I probably read 500, 600 research papers. And the crazy thing about that process is you read a a 10 page paper for about this much on the page. And so, you know, there's a lot of research that went into it as well, but I feel like this is the book I've been needing to write for a good five or 10 years. You know, I've been studying relationships for 20 years. I've been teaching a course on it for about 15. And this class that I've taught has always been one of those classes. I, I say, you know, we go to college to change the way we think and any good course you take in college should kind of mess you up a little bit. It should kind of change the way you think about the world. And I've seen that happening in my relationships course for 15 years. And students would always say, Dr. L, you have to put this into a book. Like more people need to know about this. And I was like, yeah, yeah. Books are hard to do and it's going to take a lot of time. But then, you know, I just finally got to the point, like, you know, I'm going to give it a shot. And so that's how the book came to be. Are most people taking your class as an elective? Yes. Yeah, it's not required. It's an elective. It's a hard to get into class. But interestingly, it's kind of one of the things that, you know, helped me frame the book a little bit. As much as it was really hard to get into my class, it's always this thing in the department about like some people just won't take it and they won't take it because they're worried about what it will do to their relationship. 
<laughs> right. <laughs> and so, you know, there's people that are, are just scared to learn about relationships because they don't want, they don't want any bad information. And so, you know, as I say to people all the time, it's like, you know, good information about relationships is of no threat to a good relationship. You know, relationship is strong. I mean, this class is just only going to make your relationship stronger. But it actually, it made me think in terms of how to frame the book and, and ultimately kind of the direction I took, which is, you know, so many relationship books are there to tell you, here's what you have wrong. Your relationship is wrong in, you know, A, B, and C, and you can fix it these three ways. But this, to my knowledge, is the first relationship book that really seriously takes a look at, here's all the ways your relationship is right. Here's all the things that are good about your relationships that actually you're not giving enough credit to. You're taking for granted right? You have some blind spots that, you you know, you think you're doing a really good job and making some good decisions, but actually there's some research out here that shows that's really not the way to do it. And you're, you might be doing more harm than good without ever really realizing it. Because, you know, relationships are important. People cherish the relationship. It's super important to them. And so people are naturally protective of the relationship as, as they should be. And so this is a different way to look at relationships. And, you know, anybody that reads this should emerge from this book with more positive ways of looking at their relationship, which is nice. And that's not always how self-help books are. I love that. And your book, it reads very conversational. It's very engaging and it's a fun read as well. So thank you. I want to get into more of it. So I want to hear more about what these 10 blind spots are and maybe these points of our relationship we're not putting enough emphasis on or maybe Mm -hmm. just thinking about in the wrong way. Yeah, I mean, so there are 10 different blind spots we talk about. I mean, one of the early ones, and it's early because I think it's really important, is this idea of people thinking that true love should be perfect, right? You know, we kind of have this, whether we realize it or not, like Americans especially are super romantic. We really believe in like love at first sight and like everything's going to be just magical and perfect and all those kinds of things. But, you know, in real relationships, they're not perfect. And yet we have this almost aspiration that are, you know, when, when I find the one, that person's going to be perfect. It's going to be easy. It's going to be simple. We're never going to fight. You know, it's just going to be all this automatic love that we're going to experience. And relationship reality isn't like that. Don't get me wrong. It starts that way, but it doesn't stay that way because life gets in the way. Right. And so a lot of times people will think, oh, well, perfect is what I want because that's what I deserve. And that's, that's a nice thought. It almost feels noble. Like, you know, I demand perfection. I I have super high standards. Check me out. And so what we call this in relationship research is a maximizer. Maximizer is someone who only wants the best, is always kind of looking for, you know, the absolute best possible thing, right? So if you are a maximizer and you're looking for microphones to use on your podcast, you might find one that's, you know, easily a nine out of 10. But if one comes along and it's a 9.2 out of 10, you're going to want to chase that 9.2. I mean, that'd be a maximizer mentality. And while that might be good in some contexts, it actually creates more unhappiness than it helps relationships. And so it's this myth of maximization where you constantly look for something better. And what happens in relationships is your partner's not perfect. And we tend to take more of a until death do us part kind of perspective on relationships. And a maximizer is more of a until something else better comes along perspective on relationships. And so, you know, this is just one of many examples of the kinds of things that people think they have right, but, you know, I'm going to shoot this high and I'm going to demand this high. And, you know, you might actually be doing more harm than good. Yeah. You just touched on so many things that I wanted to ask about. (laughs) One of them is you mentioned the idea of love at first sight being kind of like a fantasy, Mm -hmm. but then you also said in the beginning, it should be really great. So Mm -hmm. I'm curious what your thoughts are about even just first dates at that point, when you meet somebody, if there's not really like that connection or that spark or that chemistry, does that mean that there never will be? Do you think that that's something that can build over time? I think it's something that definitely can build over time. And we know that in relationships where people didn't know each other before they started, you know, talking and forming a relationship, physical things matter more. In relationships where people know each other more ahead of time, like they were friends or acquaintances and, you know, built more of that emotional foundation, appearances and physicality doesn't matter nearly as much. And so, you know, a lot of that that stuff can grow over time. We talk a lot about love at first sight and it it gets to one of the myths in the book about, you know, we, we tend to think men and women are so incredibly different and we actually have very sort of mixed up views about men and women. So this one study actually asked people who in a relationship says, I love you first right? And the majority of people thought it was women, right? It's, you know, we always think, oh, women, you know, they're sappy and romantic. And, but it actually turned out most of the time, men are the ones saying, I love you first, because it turns out women are much more practical when it comes to picking partners and men, you know, maybe it takes them a little bit to say it, but once they fall, they fall hard. And so that 
it's, it's just not something that, you know, many people would expect. And it's just one of those examples of, you know, a lot of what we think we know about relationships, we may not have actually correct. Right. I love debunking that myth that there's so many stigmas and stereotypes around men and relationships. So Mm -hmm. I really liked that point of view and kind of bringing it back to science and bringing it back to research. Sure. So what about doubts in relationships? A lot of your book is about how doubts are helpful. They're always there. But I want to hear more of your opinion on whether doubts means your relationship is doomed. Yeah. And I think, I think that's kind of the myth, right? I mean, I think that that is the blind spot is that once people start having some doubts, they just assume that this is a bad sign that this, this isn't meant to be. And people are particularly to take that point of view if they believe in soulmates, right? Soulmates is another one of those romantic notions where it's like, you know, there's, you're the one for me. I'm the one for you. We're the only one for each other. And if you believe that, that you have soulmates and you start having doubts, if I have doubts and you're supposed to be my soulmate, that can't be. I mean, th- those two things conflict. And so it actually starts to make me think, wait, false alarm, you're not my soulmate. And I need to move on to find the, my true soulmate who I won't have doubts about. But you know, if you're in a long-term relationship, you're going to have doubts. And you're kind of getting back to the, the question Carly asked earlier about early on, early on in a relationship, you know, you can experience love at first sight because everything's so great. Everything's fantastic. And early in a relationship, we weigh that very heavily. Like, oh, our first day was magical. You know, I just felt this connection and this chemistry and everything was wonderful. But it turns out those rewards in the early part of a relationship aren't that special in the sense that when people have done research to kind of see about rewards early in a relationship and how those relationships eventually end up, the good ones and the bad ones all had a lot of rewards early on, right? So if you're focusing on rewards early on, it, it doesn't you know decipher anything really. But what really does are the costs. Now, early in the relationship, we don't focus on the cost at all. We're too busy being in love and falling in love and just, you know, writing our name with that person's last name to just see how it goes and like all those <laughs> kinds of things. Just kind of like imagining what our wedding would be like. You know, we, we just get wrapped up in all these really, you know, feel good feelings. We ignore all those things. We hope they go away. But we know from the research, again, that those things don't go away. Those, they get worse. And so we don't always focus on the right things. And so early on, we don't focus on, on those costs when we should. But then we actually kind of overcorrect later on in our relationship and start focusing too much about the imperfections and some of those. And that's where the doubts come from. One of the, the studies I talk about real early in the book that kind of helped me figure out the, the 10 main blind spots I was going to look at is a study by Samantha Joel. She's a Canadian researcher. She's fantastic. She does really, really cool stuff on decisions. And her and a bunch of colleagues asked people, you know, what are some of the things you consider when thinking about your relationship, whether you should stay in this relationship or, or go? And they came up with tons of different things, like 27 in favor, 23 against. And so you kind of already see like, People have a lot of reasons for both. And so what they also found was people in that sample had an above average inclination to stay in the relationship. So, you know, they still had 23 concerns, right? But they still had an above average inclination to stay. And that's because inertia is a powerful thing. Even though we have doubts, it's easier to stay, right? But those exact same people also had an above average inclination to leave. So we're so conflicted a lot of times in our relationships. Like we know what we want in relationships, but we don't often know what we have. And it's really hard to know when you only talk to yourself and a couple of friends about your relationship, you don't know if your relationship is weird or normal. We always assume it's normal, but you don't actually know. Yeah. And that's interesting too, because one of the other things that you said in your book is that you're kind of the worst person to judge if your relationship is going to last. And Mm -hmm. it's kind of on a similar note of what you're saying now that you're one of the worst people to judge if it's normal or not. So who is a good person to judge that? Are you recommending someone talking to a therapist or what would that be? I mean, therapy is always a a potential option, but we have a more inside track than that and a cheaper option than that. And female best friends, they have the dirt. They know generally what's going on. I mean, the thing about a heterosexual relationship, the female talks to her best friend about the relationship. They have more inside information. The guy's not as likely to chat up his best friends about you know how the relationships are going. Guys talk about nothing. Right? <laughs> no, oh, I mean, it's, it's not, it's, they talk about things, but it's nothing. It's more practical. You know, it's not, Hey, well, you know, we have this deep and it's not like that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the female best friends, they have the inside scoop. Interesting. You know, the study that you referenced, researchers asked, the person in a relationship, like, how's your relationship going to turn out? And it's their relationship. They have more information than anybody. So they should have the best guess. They also asked their roommate and they also asked their parents. Now, the person in the relationship was the most confident about their predictions, right? But then when you looked at who was most accurate, the person themselves was the least accurate. So they <laughs> yeah. have this horrible, toxic combination of supreme confidence 
in the worst prediction. And so it goes to show that if in your relationship, your friends aren't really pro your partner, your parents aren't really for your partner, and they, they express any kinds of concerns, that's tough for them to do. So they're expressing some concerns. There should be some major red flags. Yeah. It's so funny that you said that because last night preparing for this, I was talking to my boyfriend who has been married and divorced and it could be a light subject for us. So I asked, you know, when you started that relationship, did you think it would fail? And he, I mean, he laughed, but he said, no, of course not. No one, Mm -hmm. knowing the divorce rate, knowing half of marriages end in divorce, that doesn't make anyone really sit down and question whether or not their particular marriage is going to last. Right. I mean, no one thinks it's going to happen to them, right? You know, we're overconfident about a lot of things. One of the things I have in the book is, you know, you go in a room of a hundred people and you say, how many people in here are above average in terms of their kissing ability, right? Everybody thinks they're an above average kisser, right? They have they use some certain kissing skills, right? But, you know, everyone raised their hand. I do this in class all the time. And it's like, this is mathematically impossible for everyone to be <laughs> above average, but we all think we're, we think we're above average in terms of our sense of humor, ability to judge character, those kinds of things that we just, we give ourselves sometimes too much credit. And our knowledge about relationships is, is one of those areas. We, we think we know a little bit more about relationships than we have a right to claim, you know, relationship experience isn't the same as expertise. Yeah. Wow. That's really true. I really like that quote. It's not the same as expertise, just having experience. And I think another thing that you talked about in the book was that struggles aren't necessarily a bad thing in relationship, which you've kind of touched on already, but Mm -hmm. you actually, I feel like said that they like, they can strengthen your relationship. Mm -hmm. And I was curious about if you could give a little bit more color to that. Like when you say struggles, do you mean arguments between the two parties in the relationship? Or do you mean one of the people like going through a particular struggle? It could be both actually. Couples who have better relationships are more willing to confront issues head on. And so, you know, it's a little, you know, which, which came first kind of situation is, you know, are they strong because they confront things or they confront things and then they become stronger. It's probably a little bit of both, but we also do know that couples who go through tough experiences together, you almost build a muscle, right? It's like, you know, I learned to rely on you. You learn to rely on me. And frankly, we were seeing a little bit of that going on with the current situation with the pandemic early on in March, early April, the predictions were divorce. These relationships are doomed. People are going to fight. They're going to hate each other. Divorce lawyers are going to be dancing in the streets. You know, it hasn't come to pass. Now, some people have had more problems and some people have done better. But generally speaking, if you ask, people are doing better in their relationships because you think about why you're with your partner, you fundamentally are compatible with them. You get along with them. Chances are they're your best friend. And so now if you think about it through that lens, wait, you're quarantining, you're you're getting to spend more time with your best friend and not have to do a bunch of other stuff? Why wouldn't this be a good thing? And so along that way, you're dealing with, you know, who's going to make the run to the grocery store? Who's going to wait in line for this? There's a lot of, you know, kind of problems you're solving along the way, but you're kind of building up what we call a relationship bank account and, and just learning to rely on each other and building up some of those good feelings where it's like, hey, you know, one of the main reasons we're in relationships is for stability and predictability and and someone to depend on. And now you have this person who you're able to depend on. It's going well. So it's it's affirming, right? It's like, oh yeah, this is why we're together and this was a good idea. So, you know, sometimes those struggles really do make us stronger. Yeah, definitely. I was just saying how I am having the best time being quarantined with my boyfriend and I can't imagine going back to normal life, but Mm -hmm. I don't know if I would be singing this tune if we were still living in our studio apartment. So, (laughs) or if you were with your previous boyfriend. (laughs) Oh yes. 100%. And Dr. Gary, my doubts in that relationship were valid. <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's one of those things. Did you have the doubts early on? Was it, was it? Oh, from, yeah. See, now that you know what a major red flag that is. And, you know, for anybody listening, like you have to listen to those doubts early on. It's not normal to have a bunch of doubts early on. Early on, the norm is to be like, this person's perfect. What could go wrong? Like, blah. But if you have those doubts, you want to listen to that a little bit. So what do you think about how long, if any amount of time, you should wait to have sex with somebody? Uh, as long as you need, which is, I know is a terrible answer. Time is a tough one. Everyone likes to like put like markers on time for things. And it's really, it's not the time as much as what you do with the time, right? And so I would say however long it takes for you to get to know your partner as a person so that this sexual aspect isn't the primary reason you're in the relationship. 
Because we do know that if you put too much emphasis on the sexual aspects or the kind of love that we call passionate love, kind of that steamy, high energy, like, oh my gosh, I love you kind of love, that love fizzles out over time. It's hard to maintain. So if you put all of your stock into that kind of love, it's like buying stock in Blockbuster Video. Like it's it's not going to work out. Yeah. And one of your other blind spots is believing that you should be having more sex than you actually are. So I want to hear more about that stance. Sure. You know, I think everyone has this kind of sneaking suspicion that maybe they're not doing it enough, that other people are doing a lot more than them. And what we see in the, in the research is people aren't doing it nearly as much as everyone thinks two to three times a week, particularly for early, late 20s. And then each year you're having about 3% less sex than you were before. So, you know, from 25 to 40, you know, it's about half as much. And all that sounds like terrible news, right? Because sex is, it's great. Like, so we want to have more of that. But it's not as crucial to the relationship. It's important, but it's not as critical as we think. And so researchers have done studies and looked at how much sex is like, the, what's the magic number? And is, is there a magic number? And it, it turns out that there is. And that magic number is quite reasonable. It, it's once a week. And so wow. if you're having sex less than once a week, you know, it, it is not as good for your relationship satisfaction. But anything more than once a week is bonus. It's not like, hey, if once a week is good, you know what's better? 10. Like it, it's not... <laughs> It's not that kind of relationship. And generally speaking, research shows sexual frequency doesn't relate to relationship satisfaction. Do you think more people are having sex now that they're quarantined together? I was just been thinking about that. that. <laughs> you guys are both thinking about the same thing. I, I, actually, I don't know if, if anybody has done that. I don't know of any hard data on that. I would suspect that they are, though, because we do know one of the things that does help interest in sex is just feeling a connection with your partner. And so, you know, it's not like you have to like act more sexy and all those kinds of things. It's more like, no, no, I'm going to help you do the dishes. You know, I'm going to help around the house. I'm going to be nice to you. And like building those kind of emotional connections actually is more conducive to increasing your sex life than, than other things. You know, we actually, there, there's some research that shows relationships are worse. That's when people start having more sex. I mean, this is a non-quarantine setting, but it's like we almost use sex to kind of fix a relationship and in other contexts. It's a fascinating area because a lot of the research on how sex impacts relationships is not at all how people would expect. Yeah. And kind of similar to what we talked about earlier with having chemistry at first, do you think that if you have sex with somebody early on in a relationship and you don't think it's good sex, mm -hmm. is that something that you can work on in a relationship? Yeah. And I think early on, chances are it is going to be worse. You don't know anything, right? You know, it's, it's a whole new, you know, arena. And so you don't necessarily know all the tricks and the ins and the outs and, you know, and kind of your way around. But, you know, once you start learning your way around, then, you know, it's a little bit, it's like navigating a new city. When you're new to the city, you're going to miss some of the best spots. But then after you get more familiar with the layout, then you, you know where to go. Yes, that's, that's <laughs> so true. I mean, I feel like who's having amazing sex with someone the first time? Some people. <laughs> Yeah, but people can be so quick to walk away for that reason, which is so interesting because I think it is something that you should give some time. Well, you know, it goes back to the same thing as I said before, is that this myth of like perfection that, you know, if we're meant to be and we're really that great, you know, we're just going to hit it off and it's going to be amazing. And, you know, it's going to be in some ways and it's not in others and all great relationships take work. It's not easy. And so you have to be willing to put in the work and stick it out a little bit because constantly looking for the next one is going to lead you to miss the one. Yeah, I think I might be a maximizer. I really am learning a lot from you. <laughs> but on another dating rule that I think a lot of people talk about is not talking about exes in early dates. So what do you think about that? I, mean, I think generally that it, that's a pretty good piece of advice. Bringing up the past, I, I think there's a time and a place for it. I think, I think it's ground you do have to cover at some point. First date's probably a little bit early. It's a little presumptuous, you know, first date that it, we're going to get into this enough that that's even going to matter. You know, when it comes to the things that people don't want to talk about in relationships, though, exes is right up there. But, you know, it, it's not the actual number one. Do you know what the number one thing is in relationships that people don't want to talk about? What? The relationship itself. Like, I, Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. And that's right? another question. Either. Like, how, when do you start talking about the actual relationship? As soon as possible, I think, in terms of, you know, you don't want to, you know, on date one, say like, where do you want to get married? Like, I don't, I don't think it's that kind of talk. But, you know, this idea that people don't want to talk about the relationship itself, if you don't want to talk about the relationship, that's a red flag in and of itself, right? Because you don't want to talk about it because you're not sure how that conversation is going to go. And if you're not sure how that conversation is going to go, then what are you doing? Assuming you want a long-term relationship, of course, right? And so 
you should have confidence in that conversation. And if you're in a relationship where you're both kind of on the same page and you're thinking long-term, that should actually not be a fear or anxiety provoking conversation. That should be an exciting conversation. In a long-term relationship, married for a couple of years, you know, you want couples like, they like talking about like, where are we going to retire? Like, that's a cool conversation, you know, when you're old. And so, you know, early on, you know, where's this going? What is it going to be like? Because a lot of things that help predict future relationship success are things you really want to talk about. Like, what are your views on kids? Do you want them? Do you hate them? If we have them, how should we parent them? Are you just going to be like, do whatever they want? How do you want to handle money? Combine our bank accounts, leave them separate. Are you a spender? Am I a saver? There's a bunch of things relationship related that if you're nervous or anxious about the relationship, you kind of want to avoid because you don't want to like ruin it. But it's like why people don't want to take my class. If you're worried about that kind of stuff ruining your relationship, your relationship's kind of rocky anyway. Those conversations are not going to threaten any kind of good relationship. And most people are in better relationships than they realize. And so you want to have those conversations. That's so true. And I feel like early talk in relationships, like future plans, if one person's getting like really anxious about that and turned off, then that's a good sign that you probably aren't feeling confident or comfortable with this person. But in my experience, as your relationship just progresses and you're both so invested and interested, those conversations just happen naturally. And there's not one person who feels like they need to push it along and Mm -hmm. one person that's feeling like repelled. Absolutely. I think that's probably how it should always go is it's just kind of a natural instead of like, hmm, date three, time to bring up the kids thing, right? (laughs) You don't want to necessarily be that planful about it. But yeah. I want to talk a little bit about trust in relationships Mm -hmm. and going into a new relationship after you've had relationships that really kind of break your trust, how you can Mm -hmm. navigate that with a new partner, because that's something that me and I have talked about a lot. And I'd love to hear what your advice is on that. Yeah, you know, we talk about going into relationships and trust. I mean, the aspect of relationships that really touches on that a lot is something known as attachment. Are you guys familiar with attachment at all? Yeah. Right. And so, you know, you know, there's a couple different types. Securely attached people are trusting. They're comfortable with closeness, not worried about their partner leaving them. And so, you know, even though if you're one of those people who are generally very secure in relationships, if a partner cheats on you, who breaks up unexpectedly, some bad relationship experiences can make you less secure. And so what happens when you're less secure, you put up walls, right? I mean, that's one way to react to it is like, you know, I don't want to get hurt again. So I'm going to put up this wall to make sure I don't let you in because if I let you in, then you're going to hurt me. Or you go the other way, which is I'm going to be so close and make sure you love me so much, be so clingy and needy and like, just love me, love me, love me, that you can't help but love me and everything's going to be fine. But it's kind of to get back to your question of like, you know, so what happens if you do have someone who violate your trust and you become a little insecure? The best thing is most partners are secure. Right? It's like 70%. So find a secure partner and trust them. And I know that sounds like, oh, you're going to learn trust by trust. But it's like, you have to kind of be willing to give some trust to get trust back. And so if you trust a trustworthy partner, a secure partner, you're going to see like a lot of your fears, like, oh my gosh, they're going to hurt me. They don't. Right? Oh my gosh, they're going to leave me. They aren't. Right? They're going to be mean to me. And they're just, they're just not going to do those kinds of things. Yeah, I love that answer. And my previous relationship there was cheating and my trust was broken. And I said to Carly, I think I was a secure person until that. And I've Mm -hmm. become more of an anxious person. And in my relationship now, like your advice completely echoes advice from my therapist. Like you just choose to trust and you Mm -hmm. let them prove it to you. So, I mean, in my experience, you'll have those doubts and have times where that panic comes up and anxiety comes up, but just leaning into that person who is most likely secure in the relationship and just let go. Yeah. I mean, you just, you're only going to get out of a relationship, what you put into it. And so if you go in kind of like dipping your toe in the water and not really fully ready to be all in, you're just not going to get that much out of it. It's just not that enjoyable, right? You just kind of have to kind of take the plunge and trust, but you know, trust, you know, there's like trust, but verify trust. But then if they're doing sketchy things early on, like that should ring that bell, that little pang, you know, in your gut feeling and like, oh, I've seen this before and fail fast, right? I mean, some of the, you know, talking about having those conversations, sometimes if you're going to find out some bad stuff, you might as well find out earlier than later. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And in your TED talk, you talked about how breakups don't have to leave you broken. And I liked what you said about, you were talking a little bit about losing yourself in a relationship or out of a relationship. Can you talk a little bit more about that? I think that it can be so common when you're in a bad relationship to kind of lose yourself in it, but then you're afraid to leave it because you don't really know then what else are you going to lose coming out of it? 
Yeah, I think, you know, this goes back to one of the other myths that I talk about in one of the chapters, which is we think we have to sacrifice who we are to be in a good relationship. And no good relationship is like that. Like, you shouldn't change who you are, you know, and I put in one of the chapters I talk about, like, it's okay to be a little selfish. Like, you got to put yourself first sometimes. But as you just mentioned, like, a lot of times in relationships, and sometimes it can be a good thing, like, your sense of self and your partner's sense of self, they merge, right? We call this inclusion of other in the self. And we do this because relationships are one of the ways that we grow as a person. So if I'm here and you're here and I include you in my sense of self, I get access to all the cool things about you, your experiences, some of your traits, some of your knowledge about things. And so there's a lot of research I've done myself. And so we know relationships are self-expanding to help us become better people. And so if your relationship partner helps you become a better person, they add to who you are and now they go away, like they take part of you with them. And so you can lose your sense of self. And so, you know, you'll see people following a breakup say things like, I don't know who I am anymore. I've lost my way. I'm not the same person I used to be. I don't have a clear sense of identity. And so, you know, you're really seeing that, that loss of self. But that happens when your partner really contributed to who you were. But we know, sadly, not every relationship is good like that. And so I have done other research that shows basically you can have addition by subtraction. If your partner isn't helping you become a better person, ending the relationship will. And so we rely so much on our romantic partners to help us expand and grow and become better people. They should do that. So if your partner isn't doing that, just getting rid of them is an opportunity for growth because now you can find another partner or just grow on your own because they're, they're almost like sucking your time and, and taking away your ability to grow in other ways. And so, you know, you can actually by leaving a relationship or losing a relationship, it can be a real opportunity to grow and, and you know, experience more positive emotions along with the personal growth. Do you have any advice for someone who is thinking about breaking up with a partner or having those doubts and unsure if it's something worth ending? How can you help guide someone make such a tough decision like that? Sure. I say this all the time in, in lots of the courses that I teach, but better decisions come from better data. And so, you know, you want to you want to learn about relationships, right? So you want to take a course on relationships. Dare I say, read a book about relationships that emphasizes a bunch of research studies and help show you <laughs> where relationships are strong or not. But you want to learn some things, right? And it's like relationships are so important and we're so willing to hop on Google and ask questions and read somewhat questionable sources about things. But like, never have we paid so little attention to something that's so incredibly important to who we are and our day-to-day enjoyment that relationships really warrant a lot more attention. And it's something I hear from my students all the time is that, you know, not only is it the best class they ever took, they tell everybody about it and everyone like loves the fact that they're learning about the relationships because it's just something we all think we know, but we really don't. And so you're right. I mean, it's hard to know, you know, how to make that decision. Like, should I stay or should I go? I mean, it's really, really hard to know. I don't know if some of the traditional ways we make those decisions is, is very good, but at least, you know, if you learn much more about relationships, whatever decision you make, and it's, it's unclear which would be better, you're going to feel better about. Because I think it's just as bad to lose a relationship that was actually good, like get out too soon. And it's also bad to stay too long. You want to be on the right side of that decision. And, and really, like I said, better data leads to the better decisions. Yeah. Why not read a book about it? Yeah, I, like I'm you- a fan. Yeah. And like you said, it will only make your relationship stronger. So whether you're in a relationship or not, I think that the book could be super helpful. Before we switch over to our more rapid fire questions, I want to talk a little bit more about when you're actually in that relationship. And we've talked Mm -hmm. about the trust and topics like how often you should have sex and everything like that. Mm -hmm. But what about, in my opinion, bigger things like if you're with somebody and you haven't had those conversations early on, and then you find out they don't want to have kids, like how do big compromises Mm -hmm. like that come into play? Do you think that's a bridge people can cross or is that like a deal breaker? I mean, I think deal breakers are personal and then, you know, a deal breaker for you may not be a deal breaker for somebody else. So you have to decide on how important it is and relationships take sacrifice, but we know that a lot of sacrifice in relationships isn't always as helpful as we think. Research will show that, you know, sacrifices will make us more committed. And that sounds like a really good thing. Like I make more sacrifices for my wife. She becomes more committed and that's great. But the thing that it doesn't help is how happy and satisfied we are. And sacrifice only really is helpful on the days that you're not stressed out and doing other things, which I don't know about you, but I, I almost never have those days. Right? so that's, that's tough. And so you're making sacrifices. It helps commitment, but it doesn't make you any happier. And here's the thing. It doesn't necessarily make your partner more committed because they don't notice most of the sacrifices you make. In fact, they miss like 50%. And so you're sacrificing 
It's not helping. You're not having happy. Your partner's not noticing. It creates this recipe for resentment. And so if you're talking about a, a big sacrifice about, you know, maybe it's like whether you have kids or not, or where you live and all, I would say there's no like one catch all, you know, piece of advice that's going to be true for everybody, but tread lightly. We tend to think it's an automatic, like if I sacrifice for my partner, they are going to put me on a pedestal and so appreciate it and everything's going to be fine. And chances are that's not what's going to happen. You got to sacrifice when you really want to. And that's where, you know, that, that myth and the blind spot about it's okay. Be a little selfish. If both people are kind of looking out for their own needs, I look out for my needs. You look out for yours. And hopefully both of our needs kind of address the same overall need. Yeah. That's yes. so interesting what you said about how a lot of sacrifices go unnoticed. That's so true. And I never even really thought about that. Yeah. I mean, think of all the times like your partner does something annoying and you're just like, <laughs> Maybe you're like a little raise of the eyebrow, a little eye roll, and just kind of like let it go. And it's like, oh, what an idiot. And you just, you just roll on, right? And But they don't see you letting those things go. Or the time that, you know, they put something in the fridge in the wrong spot. And you just, you don't say anything. You just move it back where it's supposed to go. You don't say anything. And it's like, there's a lot of stuff we do that is unnoticed. And a lot of that stuff, don't get me wrong, is really, really helpful. But if you're doing it in the hopes that they notice and it's going to have this profound effect on your relationship, not so much. That's where I feel like communication comes into play. Like I will have this issue in my relationship where we'll each be holding on to something or not noticing the sacrifices of the other, but noticing how much we are and then it could bottle up. I could see that happening. So just, I feel like communicating is super helpful there. Yeah, that's actually a super important point. I'm glad that you brought that up because if it's something really important to you and you're making this sacrifice and you're hoping they're going to notice and they're not noticing, don't just continue hoping, right? You know, say something. But say something not in the heat of the moment, right? We know impulsivity is horrible for relationship communication. You end up saying a bunch of things you, you shouldn't have said. You want to kind of plan it out a little bit better. And you don't want to like let things build up. You know, it leads to something we call kitchen thinking, where it's like, you know, this one little thing then sort of like tips you off. It's like, well, there's, but then there was this and this and this and this and this and this. And so one little thing, they didn't put the cap back on the toothpaste. And it was just the straw that breaks. And then you flip out and your partner's like, where the hell did this come from? Which is a valid response because you never said anything. And they think it's about a cap on a toothpaste and it's not. It's yeah. about your general inconsiderate behavior and why you told your mom about this thing that I said and you shouldn't have said. You know, it's about all those kinds of things. <laughs> yeah, it's never about the cap on the toothpaste. No, no. <laughs> at least it, it should I, not be. <laughs> I love kitchen thinking. That's such a great phrase. Yeah. Kitchen thinking leads to kitchen sinking. And, you know, kitchen sinking is just like lobbing bombs of like all the stuff you've saved up that you, you were being the bigger person because you didn't say it for all this time. But now you're like, here, I got this for you. Boom. And you just kind of <laughs> give them everything at once. Can I ask you, oh, well, I'm going to say like a very open-ended question. So mm -hmm. can you talk a little bit about infidelity and cheating in relationships? Yeah. I mean, it's one of those interesting ones is that we know it goes on and we don't know how much it goes on because it's just a tough thing to kind of get a handle on. People always want to know like, you know, what is cheating? Like what counts as cheating? And the answer is it's up to you, right? There's no like general thing like, though well, this one thing does and this one thing, it's, it's actually defined within the relationship itself. And so I always have a debate in my class when we talk about cheating and we put up a bunch of behaviors and people fight about whether it's cheating. And one of them, one of the, the hot button issues in there is flirting. And so flirting, is that cheating? Some people passionately, yes, passionately, no you know what? It doesn't really matter what anybody thinks except for your partner. You flirt with other people and your partner's like, fine, whatever, you know, go get free drinks. That, that's fine with me. Then it's fine. It's not cheating. But if they're upset about it, then it is cheating. You yeah, know? And so then it's like, what even is flirting? Like then you can go down that road too. Right. Well, mm -hmm. in some ways, you know, flirting, the whole point of flirting is to increase sexual interest in somebody else. Like it's not just to be buddies. There's definitely a sexual element to it. And so it's like, why would you do this to yourself? It's like, you know, being on a diet and hanging out in a bakery. Like you don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> why, like, why would you tempt yourself that way? But we, we know a lot of cheating comes from not getting needs fulfilled in your own relationship. And so some of the, my own research that I've done, talked a lot about self-expansion earlier, is that if your relationship isn't helping you to become a better person, it isn't helping you grow and become better, then cheating becomes much more likely because you need that from relationships. And so if your primary relationship isn't providing fulfillment of that motivation, you're basically going to find someone else that will. And so, you know, a lot of times we, we kind of mistakenly think cheating is, is all sexual and it's all about, you know, I'm not getting enough sex or I want more sexual novelty. And, you know, and that can be the case sometimes, but it's much more emotional. It's, it's much more about connections and, and things like that. Right. And I feel like it doesn't even have to be like you're not getting that sexual experience from your relationship. It could be like any number of the things we talked about. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's 
there's different kind of personality variables that go into it. And we, we kind of think, you know, men are more likely to cheat. We know that men are more likely to admit to cheating, but we also know that there's, there's this concept known as sociosexuality. And so it doesn't matter if you're male or female, but people who are better able or in their mind, more able to separate love from sex are more likely to cheat. Other people kind of see like love and sex as one and the same. They're less likely to cheat. So whether you're male or female, that sociosexuality element is really what drives you know, cheating behavior much more so than if you're a guy or a girl. Interesting. That must be a very difficult topic to do research on because like you're saying, a lot of people aren't going to be very open about it. Yeah, it's it's tough. Like, you know, have you cheated on your wife today? Uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> but what you just said about if you connect love and sex or if you don't, mm-hmm. and that will determine more mm-hmm. so if you're going to cheat or not. Did you say, sorry, if I missed it, did you say that there's a correlation between men and women and who connects love and sex? Yeah. I mean, men definitely tend to have more of a, more of a disconnect. So men tend to separate being in love from having sex, but beyond that, anybody who has that disconnect is more likely to cheat in the relationship. Yeah. So there's definitely women who are, you know, separate love and sex and, you know, they're more male-like, you know, in terms of their behaviors, but we try not to think so much in terms of men do this and females do this. Because as much as there's differences, those differences tend to be small. The world tends to over-exaggerate those differences. And so really in psychology, we really, instead of saying males do this and females do this, we just like, what's the underlying psychological variable? If we learn about that, explains both men and women. And so, you know, in this particular case, sociosexuality is one of those things. Yeah, it's so hard to separate those things that have just become kind of like ingrained in your mind. Like, I feel like I'll have friends who go out with a guy and then he doesn't text them back for a few weeks and they'll be like, oh, but he's probably just like trying not to be too needy. And the automatic response is no, guys don't think like that. And I feel like you have those things in your head that like guys don't think like this and girls Mm -hmm. think that and everything along those lines. But it's interesting that that's not actually always the case. It's not always the case. And people kind of see it as almost like a harmless belief. Like, oh yeah, you know, guys and girls are different. And why are all guys this way? And why are all girls this way? And we we almost take it for granted and and just see it as this like almost meaningless thing. But it's far from meaningless because if you're dating guys and guys are acting in stereotypical guy ways where they're not interested in being close, they don't want to communicate, they're kind of aloof. Maybe they're cheating a little bit because that's what guys do. And if you think all guys are the same, and you're dating a guy and he's doing all these bad things, why would you leave that relationship? Because I'm going to trade in this guy who does these guy things for a different guy. He's a guy, so he's going to do those guy things too. And so you end up stuck. And it's, it's like this tyranny of low expectations where like you just expect bad guy behavior from any guy. So it's like, mm, might as well put up with it. <laughs> yeah, it really sets you up for failure. Oh, definitely. Absolutely. <laughs> I just have one question before ending questions. Mm -hmm. What advice would you have for someone who's trying to date or find a long-term relationship right now during COVID? Um, Approach it like you're trying to become friends. And that's, that's for COVID. I mean, and that's really for any other time as well, but it's a little bit easier during COVID because the physical proximity is, you're just less able to do it, right? If you're following the rules. And so like approach getting to know somebody like, you know, you're looking to see if you want to be best friends with them. And so you always tell people, you know, kind of give your your partner the best friend test. Is it someone that you like? Is it someone that you laugh with and you like spending time with and supports you and likes you for who you are and you don't, you can actually be yourself around them. And so when it comes to our best friends, we're actually pretty high standards and we kind of demand our best friends to be really best friend-like. And if your partner is held to those same high standards as they should be, then you know you start filtering people out in a, in a slightly different way to make sure you're going to end up with someone who's actually going to be more of a long-term partner. Because we know like that best friend side, it, it's a companionate love. And companionate love is the love that keeps relationships going. Passionate love, that sexual element might get you married, but what keeps you married is more of the companionate love, that best friend side. How am yeah. I going to find that person during COVID? <laughs> well, you know, I, I, you know, have conversations, you know, dating apps and, and things, but, you know, rather than meeting up, you know, people are really switching over to a lot more videos, calls, and more of those communication types of activities. Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, this was so much fun. We love talking to you. I feel like we could pick your brain forever about this topic. Oh, I love it. I love it. <laughs> but we're going to ask you a few of our ending questions that are more okay. just to get to know you outside of okay. what you do. So Mia, why don't you kick it off? Yes. So staying very much in theme with the episode, but we have not talked at all about your own marriage, your own relationships. Mm -hmm. So what is one must-have quality for you in a significant other? 
smart, have to be smart. Intelligence is, is everything. And so, you know, it, it's tough to spend time around people who are not thoughtful, but a very, very, very close second to that is kind, right? A, a kind hearted person that cares about others. Yeah, that's a good one. I knew you'd have a good answer to that one. <laughs> and I like asking men this question because I feel like men don't talk about it as much, but what is your favorite method of self-care? This sounds lame, but and it, sound, it makes me sound like such an old man, but napping. <laughs> oh, that's I'm, a good one. I love that. I'm, I'm a napper. And so, you know, it, like I have a writing routine. I have like a work routine, but I am, you can put me down for a solid nap between 2.30 and 3. It's almost like a meditation, but it's, I always fall asleep. But it, it's really just like a, a pretty solid 20 minutes. And then, you that's know. That's it? Yeah. That's it. Do you have kids? I do. I have a 13-year-old daughter. Okay. So, you know, it makes it much easier now. Yeah. You know, when she was, when she was little, those naps weren't as well scheduled, but you know, <laughs> when she napped, I napped, you know, those kinds of things, but you know, I, I'm a late night worker and I don't like getting up too early, but I, I end up just having to, but there's something about, I don't know, like you do a lot of writing, a lot of work. And then by the mid afternoon, like my brain feels a little fuzzy and I'm just, I'm unapologetic about like, yep, taking a nap. Yeah. Does your nap um, involve an alarm clock? No. Wow. Which is, you know, it's living dangerously, but largely it's worked out. Do you nap in your bed? I do. <laughs> Let's dig into this nap. I do. Where do you nap? What is the temperature of the room? I, you know, I just yeah, feel like naps should be part of our lives a bit more. I'm just trying to get some advice. I you nap. Are, you don't nap, me On weekends, but not like during a weekday. You know what I do that's really weird too with the napping? I shouldn't be telling anybody this because this is awful. But like I, <laughs> I, put on, I put on music, but it's not like soothing music. It's like a mix of like song, like rock songs from the 90s. <laughs> It's, it's loud because what I, what I find is like, I, if I don't do that, I think too much and I start thinking about things I have to do and I have to like, all that. but if it's loud music and songs I know well, then I kind of like sing along with the songs and I sing along and then I just kind of drift off and then I'm okay. That is one of the most interesting things you've said this whole day. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say that. There's nothing like a 90s rock nap. I'm totally going to try one of those. I, I, you know, I would say Smashing Pumpkins. I mean, I great nap music. So, yeah. You would never think, but I know. It's, you know, my wife tells me all the time I'm weird. My daughter thinks I'm weird. <laughs> now, you know, hopefully millions of other people think I'm weird. That's amazing. That's really funny. What is one food you can't live without? Food I can't live without? probably chicken. I put a chicken, chicken, I go to like everything. Like it's in salads, you know, on pizza. Like I just, I think if chickens didn't exist, I, my life would be sadder. I could see That's that. Amazing. That's like a food you can eat in so many different ways. It's so, you know, sometimes I'm like annoyingly practical and that's, that's an answer that shows that, you know, like I should have said like, you're right. Like, it's like, you know, I, I mean, I could have said water. I mean, that would have been worse, but uh, like a more fun answer, you should say like pizza or something like yeah, that. Yeah, people and, usually say like French fries or chocolate or something like that, you know, but chicken. Yeah. <laughs> chicken. Chicken's very versatile. Yes. And just to wrap things up, what <laughs> advice would you give to your younger self? Advice I would give to my younger self? Um, don't be such a perfectionist. Take more risks. You can't be afraid of failure. And so, you know, for a long time growing up, I always wanted to like, you know, I was like an annoying kid who wanted to get like a hundred on everything. And so that kind of person, I think you kind of will set up your life in some ways where you don't challenge yourself, maybe sometimes as much as you should. And so you kind of want to be awesome without ever challenging yourself in a way that actually pushes you to become better. I figured it out, I think somewhere late in college and, you know, into grad school, but you know, I wish I would have figured it out earlier. That I, I wish in high school I would have pushed myself more. It might have changed the whole trajectory of my life. I'm not like disappointed with my life or anything, but like I, I just do think that that's one of those things that being like saying you're a perfectionist sounds cool, and it, but it's, it's actually so much more harmful than it is helpful. Yeah, that's so true. I love that answer. Do you think it's something that's like taught to us growing up? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think we're such an achievement-related society, and like you know, we joke with our kids like if they get a 97 on a test, like why didn't you get 100? Like what did you get wrong? Like, we were so obsessed. Like, what did you get wrong? And it's like, no, no, no. Like getting things wrong is a great way to learn. If people are so obsessed with constantly getting things right, they're not going to take chances. Right? And if you want to like get rid of creativity and innovation and all those kinds of things, like have people play it safe all the time. And that, that's really not what we want. The, the idea, you know, the, the mindset stuff about, you know, our growth mindset and have that mindset where it's like, okay, I'll work a little bit harder. I'll learn a little bit more. I'll try a little bit more and I'll get better. And, you know, just, it's more about the journey of improvement than it is about the destination of perfection, I think. 
Yes, I feel like that applies to so many things and like so many great things in our lives were happy accidents. So I love that a lot. Yeah, sometimes you just have to go with the flow and don't plan things. I say to students all the time, you know, if you wait to be ready for things, it's never going to happen. Like, are you ready to go to grad school? No. Was I ready to get married? No. Was I ready to become a parent, buy a house, like any, any of those things? You're never actually fully ready. You just have to be ready enough and then be willing to learn along the way. Yeah, you can't wait for the perfect conditions. I totally agree with that. Well, thank you again. This was amazing. And everyone listening, definitely buy the book. It was very eye-opening, like I said. But can you tell everyone where they can find you and where they can find the book? Sure, you can find me on Twitter at Lewandowski PhD, but also my website, www.garylewandowski.com. Thank you so much for being here. This was such a fun conversation. So we're so happy to have you. And everyone, look out for Gary's book. Well, thank you, Carly. Thank you, Mia. This was a lot of fun. Like you said, I could talk about this stuff for hours. So thank you for keeping me under control. Thank you for listening to the Mostly Balanced podcast. You can find us on Instagram at mostly underscore balanced. And if you loved the episode, please leave us a rating or a review on Apple. And we'll see you again next week for another great episode.